everyone! Before we get to the episode, we want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself, or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. The, the podcast. podcast, and I'm not Theo, and I am not Juliet, and it is a foggy day in it's San Francisco a weather today. Report. We'll get to the weather report right away. Uh, it's cold; it's like 55 degrees, and and uh, so, sort of a little bit dark. So can't see the sky, no sky in sight, uh, but can't complain about it considering that elsewhere in the world it's 150. Um, I think in Theo's neck of the woods, it's probably pretty warm too. It's very weird. So it's been super hot, which I would expect for summer in Texas, mm-hmm. right? Or Austin. Maybe there's parts of Texas where it's cold. I don't know. Um, but it rained like two days ago. And then it was nice and cool for like a whole day. And mm-hmm. I mean, like 75, right? Nice. Um, but we're back to 100 or whatever. And I just mentally block it out. Like, you just stay in this is hot. Time. Yeah. House to car to air conditioned Walmart or Target, it's not Walmart. So awful. I not the Walmart prior, which of course is awful. <laughs> it's so awful. I have a white hand towel that I now keep in my car and I drape over the steering wheel so the steering wheel won't be too hot when I touch it with my wow. hands. Yeah, because it is That's amazing. So hot. Do you can you take it off when you drive, or do you need to leave it on even when you drive? Oh, I can take it off when I drive. It just okay, just doesn't absorb the heat from the sun. Yeah, as much. Somebody bought a black car with a black interior, <laughs> and nice. it's really stupid. Yeah, so that was nice. <laughs> warm in the winter. I guess so. Um, all right, so what's shaking bacon? There is no bacon shaking, and that <laughs> is because our refrigerator died this week. No. Yes. And like a moron, I refused to believe that it was dead. <laughs> so I let it sit for like three hours and then I kept checking on it like every hour and it just kept staying this. It wasn't cold, but it wasn't hot. Right. Yeah. And what was happening was it had quit working. It's just insulated. And so the cold stayed there for a while, whatever. So, yeah, and then I had to uh, tell the landlady, hi, the refrigerator doesn't work now. And, of course, I'm worried that she's going to be all like, what did you do to it? So I was very quick to let her know that, like, we've just been treating it like a normal refrigerator. Yeah, yeah, just beating on it and putting overstuffing it. and yeah, Leaving it open to cool things. the house. <laughs> wow, so what, are they going to come out and fix it? Uh, there's a guy coming to fix it. But uh, it's uh, 4th of July weekend, so nobody's around because everybody's very busy buying fireworks to set the country on fire later. And they'll be here on Tuesday. So we have to live for like a good, what is that, 10 days? A good two or three days. It's not 10, but... With no refrigerator, what do you do with all your food? Well, it turns out that we have a little refrigerator in the pantry, which I had forgotten all about because I never use it. Um, Right. Because... We just, it's, but it's there. And so, uh, 
we've were able to get a lot of our food into that and then we threw, I mean, threw out so much food it's not even it's you know it's gross yeah no um, i'm sure but now i'm like you know this little refrigerator is awesome and it kind <laughs> of is all we need why do we need a fridge with 40 different condiments right i mean do i really need right. mayonnaise right. olive oil based mayonnaise Ten sriracha mayonnaise sauce. exactly right 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 no i don't um so whatever we're living without a fridge it's like camping it's kind of um it's kind of fun and it is making me think i really want a smaller life i want <laughs> i want a little fridge and i just want like one type of tea in the house not 20 and not that i drink tea and that's the other thing i don't right. drink tea there shouldn't be any tea in the house right. um i only need one bedroom i don't need 40 different just types of co- right that's it. I don't need a pasta maker and a smoke machine to make my drinks taste like smoke. I want a simpler life. Oh, but it's fun. Now that I've bought all this stuff, I want to throw it all away. That's right. Just just leave it out on the street. Someone will want it. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, that's all that's shaken with me. What is shaken bacon? Oh, man, nothing. I got I got literally nothing. I went did some errands, um, so I did get outside of the house, which was nice. Um, I already gave you the weather report. The dog is fine. The husband is fine. Um, there's a strange beeping noise coming from the studio that my husband has, which is right next to where I record, right next to the kitchen where I record the podcast. <laughs> so. <laughs> you know what I never put together in my head? What? Your husband does have a studio. Yes. But you record he in the kitchen. Offered- he has offered me the studio to record, but you saw his studio. If I were to move anything aside, there would be a nowhere to put it, and b I would probably mess up the entire setup. Oh, so easily destroy a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment just by touching the wrong button. Exactly. So I'm not even going to try. So I'm just going to sit out here in the kitchen and, and the complain kitchen about it. <laughs> and complain about it. <laughs> well, I say yeah. smart. That's what I would do too. Awesome. Um, that's it, though. Um, but we do have an exciting episode today. We are talking about Friends, the show, uh, and an apology that has come from the, um, the writer and producer. So I have a bunch of information that I have taken. I want to give credit to Adriana Diaz of the New York Post and Peony Hirwani of The Independent. So thank you to them for writing the articles from which I've lifted nearly everything that I'm going to say. Um, We're going to call um, them and have friend- them do the show for us. Uh, we should do that someday. <laughs> hey, we were going to use your article, so we thought maybe you could just do the show for us. Right. <laughs> we, we might have to pay. Hmm. Um, okay, so Friends, as everyone in the U.S. knows, and maybe people elsewhere, I'm not sure how wide a reach it has, um, but it was a very, 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 very popular American television show and also probably very influential, too. I can think of a lot of TV shows that came after it that... Um, Ripped it off. influenced by it. Yeah, yeah, that too. Um, and it started in 1994 and ran 10 years to 2004. Had an average of 30 million viewers a week and is still running today in syndication. I know, 30 million. 30 Can you imagine? 30 million. Uh, no, I can't. I wonder how many listeners like um, My Favorite Murder has. Oh, Do you think it's similar? Yeah, probably. I mean, in, in terms of streams... Uh, I'm sure they're like in the tens of millions. Wow. Easily. And I don't know like how many viewers or whatever the highest TikTok account has, but at least three million. Oh, well. Three million at least. I mean. Seven million. Well, Mama Todd has seven million. I was just going to reference her. Then I was like, oh, but that was sad. And then. That's okay. uh, She's doing better now. She is. I I mean. Sure. Let's talk about Mama Todd for half a second. Yeah. Yeah. I saw her follow-up video after her son's yeah. service, and I've got to say, like, wow, what a what a person! What a person! Absolutely, she's just the sweetest, kindest, most generous human being on the face of the earth, as far as I know. Definitely, and she has seven. So, mil- to get back to your point, she has seven yeah. million followers on TikTok. So, yeah. uh. So yeah. So I don't I don't know if she's like the highest or who the highest. I guess the highest ones are more like influencers, like not in, like product influencers, like Michaela yeah. Nogueira maybe has a lot, and she's the one that does the makeup. Um, you probably don't watch those though. No. Um, yeah, I, I can see I've why never you heard might of not. her, but I didn't want to say I didn't hear of her in case she was like a social justice warrior and like no. someone I should know. 
Um, she's a, she's she's awesome, but um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so back to friends. Well, I, so, <laughs> no, what were you going to say? So, well, what I will say is that uh, this conversation about TikTok and this conversation about the apology of Friends and how Friends had thirty million viewers, right, and how astounded we are by that fact, um, it it gets into what we'll be talking about today, which is representation in media. And mm-hmm. back in the day when the studios controlled everything essentially it it would there there were not podcasts there was no youtube channel right? right the internet has really led to the democratization of content um mm-hmm. and has opened the door for many uh black creators people of color etc uh to produce content and so the numbers have gone down now 30 million people have right. or 330 million people have more choice as to what to watch. Right. right. So you get fewer viewers per item. But more voices in the marketplace. Right, exactly. Perfect case in point, you and me. Yes, us and our, our 57 viewers. Our listeners. Our 57 and a half. <laughs> Is it half me? <laughs> yeah. I'm half a person. <laughs> so anyway, I derailed you back to friends. but, but That's yeah. okay. I was just going to say that um, 30 million viewers a week, and it still runs today in syndication, so you can probably turn on TV anywhere and, and see Friends on. Um, the show, as, if you don't know, uh, centered around a group of six white heterosexual best friends living in Greenwich Village, which is a famously gay neighborhood in New York, an historically diverse city. Uh, the show, uh, despite it being a gay neighborhood in a diverse city, uh, the setting, the show rarely featured a character of color. There were only two recurring characters of color, both of whom were brought on as short-lived love interests for Ross, who's one of the obviously one of the male characters. This show is now 65-year-old writer and produce, producer Marta Kaufman initially struggled to understand the difficult and frustrating criticisms of her television series, choosing to believe the successful show was being singled out, she told the Los Angeles Times. It took me a long time to begin to understand how I internalized systemic racism. Along with millions of other Americans, the 2020 murder of George Floyd pushed Kaufman to reckon with the country's racist past and her own part in perpetuating systems of racism. She said, I've been working really hard to become an ally, an anti-racist, and this seemed to me to be a way that I could participate in the conversation from a white woman's perspective. It was after what happened to George Floyd that I began to wrestle with my having brought into, bought into systemic racism in ways I was never aware of, she said. That was really the moment that I began to examine the ways I had participated. I knew then that I needed to course correct. In this case, I'm finally, literally, putting my money where my mouth is, she added. So what she did was um, she pledged $4 million to her alma mater, Brandeis University, in order to fund an endowed chair in the school's African and African American Studies Department, which is one of the oldest in the U.S. I've learned a lot in the last 20 years, Kaufman said. Admitting and accepting guilt is not easy. It's painful looking at yourself in the mirror. I'm embarrassed that I didn't know better 25 years ago. The Marta F. Kaufman 78 Professorship in African and African American Studies will support a distinguished scholar with a concentration in the study of the peoples and cultures of Africa and the African diaspora and assist the department to recruit more expert scholars and teachers, map long-term academic and research priorities, and provide new opportunities for students to engage in interdisciplinary scholarship, the Waltham, Massachusetts-based university announced. I don't know if it's Waltham or Waltham. Oh, um... My niece went to Brandeis. No brag. Oh, she did? She did, really? yes. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. I thought, oh, that's weird. Okay. Good for her. <laughs> well. Uh, I thought she went somewhere else, but no, I was thinking of your sister, so never mind. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. So I'm going to say Waltham. Okay. That's sure. how I think it is said. That makes sense. Um, so Brandeis may or may not be in Waltham. And uh, so last year, there was a reunion of Friends called Friends the Reunion. Um, Such an original. Wow. Right? That's okay, though. It's easy for me to make fun of people, which is why I'm here. Uh, Friends the Reunion aired to honor the iconic show, its beloved characters, and diehard fans. The show faced renewed calls to address its glaring lack of diversity, but at the time, Kaufman didn't feel it was appropriate. I didn't know how the two were related, she said. And I also don't know how we could have addressed it in the context of that reunion, going into all the things we did wrong. Well, that's how you could address it. You could go into right? all the things you did wrong. We did wrong. Yeah. That would be one way. How about um, my yeah. regrets? Um, 
The show was yeah. a huge success. Here's where we failed. That's of interest. <laughs> I think it would be, actually. I mean, yeah, why not? Uh, but she has spoken out in recent years about her regrets from the show, and she told The Hollywood Reporter that there are probably a hundred things I would have done differently, but she did state that the cast was not consciously chosen to be entirely white. Um, her co-creator, whose name is Kevin Bright, noted that the chemistry among the stars of the show was um, notable. And he said, I would have been insane not to hire those six actors. What can I say? I wish Lisa was black, he told The Hollywood Reporter. Which I'm like, dude, come on, dude. Uh, That's not- I mean, uh, different time, different place, different different everything, right? So there's kind of that. Uh, but yeah, you could still hire those six actors and hire other actors. Right. There are other people that were on the show that could have been more diverse. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. And uh, another thing that the Kaufman said was uh, during the 2020 ATX TV Festival. I don't know if that's Austin, Texas TV Festival. That is. Or- hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> uh, at that festival, she said, what makes this truly emotional for me is that I want this connection that I didn't have. I deeply, deeply want this connection with the black community that I didn't have. Because of friends, I never attained that. To which I say, girl, no. That bit I don't understand. Because of friends, I didn't attain that. And when she says friends, that's referencing the TV show. The show. Not because yeah. of her own friends keeping her from having right. friendships with people of color. Um, but it's focused on what she wanted. I wanted a connection with the black community. I wanted to be, you know, closer with the black community. And I didn't get that because of the show that I made, I wrote, and I produced. I mean, it doesn't make any sense in the first place, like you said. And, and second, it's a little bit self-centered and not exactly in line with wanting the best for the world. So this is diversity. This is the, the problem, right? And I... And I uh, uh, because Marta Kaufman is a mirror and I am looking into it and seeing myself, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And it's the white liberal guilt that's so cliched now when the issue of race comes up that it's almost formulaic as to what the white person will say and how the white person right. will feel. And it right. does tend to center around the white person and the white person's feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and on one hand, you can say something like, well, yeah, cause I'm talking about how I feel. Right. <laughs> but then on the other hand, it, it really is more, yeah, if you're suddenly aware of the first really time. It's not really about how you yeah, feel. Yeah. It's, it's about how the other people have been feeling all along. Yeah. So in that, um, ATX zoom conference, so this, uh, it took place in 2020, just at the onset of the pandemic when we were all into lockdown. And so using Zoom oh. was new and all of that, right? The uh, I watched a good, like, 25 minutes of it. And I will say, super interesting, uh, because it was uh, five female showrunners, or as I used to know the term, producers back in the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and And they were talking about just... Hollywood in general and how they came up in the industry and the shows they're working on and their thoughts and feelings around different aspects of being the person in charge. Right. Um, And it did get into diversity and I'm going to quote now Robin Theed, who's the creator, showrunner, executive producer and actor on um, a black lady sketch show. And Mm -hmm. I will say I could listen to her talk all day long. And so Here's what she's it's white liberal guilt. This is related. Okay. It feels very tangential. Okay. What? Where? Why okay. are we talking about this? It's white liberal guilt, right? Got it. And so she is a person of color. She's a black woman, and she said, "Systemic racism was set up by racists to encourage and teach racism and disguise it. No one was supposed to know that that systemic racism was wrong, right? Or that mm-hmm. it was there. It was meant to be invisible." And we all sort of brought up in this culture of this is the way things are, right? So black people were supposed to look like they were yelling for no reason. Uh. Right? And white people were supposed to not feel any guilt for what was happening because this is the way the world is, right? 
And so Robin Thede's point is that um, white people who are just waking up to systemic racism are also victims of systemic racism. Yeah, yeah. you guys benefited from it. But now you're now here it is. And suddenly you're recognizing the part that you played. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. So on one hand, I'm like, oh, Marta, a lot of your apology is so self-centered and and about how you feel. But then on the other hand, it's like, uh, how as a That's white person do you kind of like say, oh, yeah, I've been participating in the system and and it feels bad now that I'm aware of it. And, and I mean, anything you say is going to sound stupid and shallow. Yeah. Yeah. I think a good example of what you've been talking about is David Schwimmer's response to, to this whole thing about the um, sex, sexism, racism on, um, on Friends. He said, I don't care. The truth is also that that show is groundbreaking in its time for the way in which it handled so casually sex, gay marriage, and relationships. The pilot of the show is my character's wife. Um, my character's wife left him for a woman and there was a gay wedding of my ex and her wife that I attended. I feel that a lot of the problem today in so many areas is that so little is taken in context. You have to look at it from the point of view of what the show is trying to do at the time. I'm the first person to say that maybe something was inappropriate or insensitive, but I feel like my barometer was pretty good at that time. I really was, I was already really attuned to social issues and issues of equality. But I think the reality of things you know, shows him to be wrong there. He was not a good barometer of um, issues of equality because he didn't even notice that there was a problem. And when he says that um, you have to look at it from the point of view um, of what was going on at the time in society, does that mean that we have to accept it because racism was worse at the time? Because that's what was going on. Yeah, I mean, great question that I don't have a great answer for. No answer. Just, just, just raising questions. <laughs> just, just asking questions. I mean, I will say I read a couple of articles where Schwimmer said that he is the he is the one that said Ross needs to date women of color. Uh, he also said that, which is interesting. Like, if he thought everything was so great, why does he need? Why did he feel the need to bring in more people it's of color? Lack of diversity. He, he, he well, was no, aware. I know. But first, he says there is no lack of diversity. The lack of diversity wasn't an issue. And then at the same time, he was saying we need to bring in more people of color. It's sort of like a contradiction in my mind. Yeah, I think, I don't know, right? Maybe you can be aware that there's a societal issue, but not aware of just how big it is. I I don't know, right? It's certainly possible. I mean, I will say that in the 90s, it, it, what they were just creating a TV show, and that's all they were doing, right? Yeah. And the TV show was about these four people. Um, Six people. Oh, see, I never watched Friends. <laughs> You've never seen it, really? I've seen maybe, well, I've, I certainly have seen clips and I've seen parts of episodes. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, no, that was back in the days when I did not watch TV. I see. Very proudly did not watch TV. So <laughs> yeah, Friends and Seinfeld, like a, a, oh, okay. no reference for them at all. Okay. Someone ever said, you're I'd such a you Rachel, I'd be like, I was that good. Yeah, I'd say you miss more not watching Seinfeld than you did not watching Friends. I so it'd be fine either way. Uh, <laughs> sitcoms. Uh. Yeah. Uh, well, Ada Inekia of BuzzFeed actually counted the black people who appeared on Friends and came up with a total of 27 mostly very small roles, and that's in a show um, with 236 episodes. So that's like 10% of the episodes had a, a black person. And I don't know about other people of color because I don't know anyone that counted them, but probably probably fewer, uh, if I were to guess. Um, so then I wondered how... Um, how many black people have been on television? How long have black people been on television? Well, um, African-Americans have been on TV uh, since TV started. Uh, the very first person on uh, black person on television was probably Broadway star Ethel Waters, who hosted the Ethel Waters Show, which was a, a one-time variety show on NBC on June 14th, 1939, when television was still being developed. And the first uh, African-American entertainer with a network television series was Nat King Cole, which is interesting. Um, and that was 1956 to 1957. But he, um, he had a hard time attracting sponsors, so it only lasted about a year. Yeah. That is, I wondered, like, who are the first black people on TV? But I didn't go down that path. 
Yeah, I was surprised that it was that early, 1939. And I think, that, I don't know how popular the variety show was, but I bet it was pretty popular since she was a Broadway star at the time. So I uh, I should have gone and looked to see what the viewership was of it. But but then it wouldn't have meant anything to me because it could have been 10 people and there were only 50 people in the world. Who had TVs, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Who... <laughs> yeah, or who had TVs. So it would have to be a percentage of the television owner owning, television owning public. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you got for us? Any information? Well, information? Uh, yeah. So I was I shared with you pre-show that I was hoping to find a really good story to kind of use as as well, to use the subject as the backdrop, right? Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't find a good story. Like I was, oh, what about Bridgerton, right? Because that's a Netflix series that showcases. Uh, many different actors and it's got quite a diverse cast and it takes place in the 1800s in England. Right. And have you seen Bridgerton at all? Uh, no. Mm -mm. Do you know anything about it? No. Let me tell you. No, because okay. that's not going to be the thing. But <laughs> so whatever, it's like, Oh, the new Netflix show, it's Bridgerton. You have to watch it. And I'm like, oh, I don't want, uh, uh. but then I That's did. That's kind of how I felt. Right. Okay. Yeah. And everybody said, and I was like, oh, I don't know. And then, and then I did. And, you know, it opens up with like um, a black aristocrat in a carriage. I forget what was happening, going to meet a friend or whatever. Right. And the friend is white and, and okay, cool. You know, I'm along for the ride. This, this is a series. And then like half the cast was people of color. And I remember I actually asked James, it was like, do you know anything about the show? Are they just casting people of color? in mm -hmm. lead roles or, mm -hmm. or is there really a segment many? of you know, British history that, right. That I'm unaware of. Right. Yeah. Uh, because certainly there were um, rich black uh, British people. people in the 1800s. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and no, it's a complete alternate universe reimagining the king has oh. married a black woman and that ends racism. But what I, uh, at least doesn't end racism, but, uh -huh. But it allows black people entree into aristocratic society, right? So cool. And they the show doesn't even address that until like five episodes in. Oh, wow. So it's just white and black people who are all rich and dressed like British people walking around. All live and, together in harmony. Well, all living together, stabbing each other in the back and trying to steal uh -huh. each other's millions and marry each other. But yeah, uh -huh. it's like... Okay, it just it gets a normal show, and then after a while, you forget that it's a diverse cast, and you just start watching the show. It's just a normal thing, right? And then uh -huh. about midway through, the show explains why there are all of these. Why? How is this alternate universe here? Right. I see. And so fascinating. Um, and I don't recall a lot of like upset or pushback on. Oh, there's this Netflix show, and the cast is too diverse for me. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. I do, I was thinking like, oh, remember Annie when they wanted to cast a black girl to star in the Broadway show, Annie, and people were like, she can't be black. Annie's a white girl with red hair. <laughs> I mean, Annie doesn't exist. She, right. could, she right. could be anything. She could be anybody. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there was the whole like Cinderella. I remember when Brandy back in the 90s, played Cinderella and Whitney Houston was a godmother. It was a big ABC TV thing. Oh, no. so I remember this. Okay. Um, and it was it was the whole, like, can a black person be Cinderella? Oh. Right? Um, not so much, I mean, that that's how I was aware of it, right? Because, yeah. that again, back in the days when I really wasn't watching TV. Brag, brag. Right. Um, <laughs> so... So it just kind of felt like those conversations, we don't have to have them. You already know that people are going to say shitty, ugly things about yeah. what's going on. And they're going to have yeah. horrible, stupid opinions. They're not going to be able to justify beyond, well, that's not what the original script says or whatever, right? That's not the original story. And yeah, you can you can change source material. You can change things up. Story is allowed to reinvent itself. So that just all felt, eh. Um, and then it got me thinking like, oh, well, Hollywood and just the history of Hollywood. So a real quick exploration of the Hayes Code and how that enforced uh, racial segregation in film. 
and then and then a quick snapshot of how things are looking today and by today i okay. mean 2020 because that's <laughs> that's where you got the information yeah from. <laughs> close enough all right but a hundred years ago in 1922 um, there was an actor who was really popular, and his name was Fatty Arbuckle, and I'm sure that's oh, yeah. gonna, yep. And I so, remember that. yes, indeed, Fatty Arbuckle was accused of uh, sexually assaulting a young starlet at a party in, might have been in San Francisco, for that matter. Um, and I think she died, but maybe she didn't die. And her name was Virginia, and I should remember these details, but I, but I don't. So. Uh, so that was like one of the first major scandals in Hollywood. And and the the studio heads, and again, we're talking about a collection of six guys, right? The industry was mm -hmm. really small. They all knew each other. They're all making money. There, there were a number of scandals that broke out, but the Fatty Arbuckle one was, no puns intended, the biggest one of them all. Mm -hmm. And so they were concerned that oh gosh, Hollywood's getting such a shitty reputation for being a place of scandal. So they brought in a guy. They hired a Presbyterian elder named William H. Hayes to rehabilitate Hollywood's image. Um, Hayes had been the postmaster general appointed by Warren G. Harding, who was the president. He'd been the head of the Republican National Committee, right? So you already know this guy's uptight. Um, and he served for 25 years as the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, and he was known as the Motion Picture Czar. And Hollywood's big problem with, oh, all the scandals, right? Yeah. Broke just about a year after Major League Baseball's big scandal. Oh. 1919, the World Series was fixed, right? And so it was fixed for gambling purposes. So a couple of the players threw the game, didn't play as hard as they could have, whatever. I've, I don't know all the details, right? But the public found out about it and their trust was betrayed. And Major League Baseball then said, oh my God, you guys, we're so sorry. We tried to make money off of you because you're all so gullible. So here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to create a commission that's going to police us. We're going to uh. create our own task force right. to monitor right. our behavior and they're right. going to tell you how great we are now thanks everyone <laughs> bye problem solved and so hollywood steals this idea they're like oh uh, god there's so much bad shit that's happening right now these actors can't keep their clothes on and <laughs> refuse to like uh stay out of the public right so it's all kinds of bad and we're getting a reputation of being something that leads people astray so they bring mm -hmm. in this Presbyterian minister, Hayes, and he had developed a code, and the code was basically a two-part code. There was the moral part of the code where things were just sort of known and understood, and then there was the specific particulars, which actually were written out, and these were things that could not happen in television, things like a man and a woman may not be in the same bed together at the same time. Right. Right. No swearing at all. I don't like this terminology, but uh, this was how it was explained in the day. No mixing of the races. Mm -hmm. You may not kiss people of other races. You may not. And there were there was a duration for a kiss where the, was it a kiss on the cheek? Who was kissing whom? Right. Well, it, 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 but there was no enforcement. So. From 1922, when they brought Hayes in, until about 1933, yeah, there were these rules, and yeah, the scripts went to his office, and yeah, he would like tell people, hey, you're, this character can't be black. You're going to have to change this character to a white person, right? This isn't because this character falls in love with this whatever, right? And the directors and the producers and the studio heads would say, you know, good point. I think we're going to go with this read on it anyway. And Hayes and his team would have to beg and plead and cajole in order to get what they wanted. And movies were going real risque. Um, the Great Depression hit in 1930. And so people, one, were tight with the money, two, depressed and looking for escapism, and three, 
what sells is what sells, right? And so sex sold. And so women in scanty clothing and tawdry. Oh, I love that word. I can't believe I remember. Tawdry. Tawdry, tawdry <laughs> storylines, you know, um, things where the gangsters actually become the hero, right? Yeah. And in particular, I'm thinking of like mob mafia movies, right? Where it's right. like you sort of cheer when little rusty finger comes in and guns down everyone because they deserve the, the filthy rats. Yeah, so that all went against the Hayes Code. No violence, the bad guys never win. Um, sexuality, and I don't mean in terms of preference, but just like, mm -hmm. can't be too sexual on screen. So in 1933, the Roman Catholic Church, hi, hi, we see you guys, um, launched a boycott against movies, telling all good Roman Catholics, don't go see a movie, they're immoral, have you seen this Hollywood place? Have you heard of Fatty Arbuckle? Right? And so there was also a move in government to set up a regulatory government agency that would then police the movie industry. And the movie industry said on July 1st, 1934, officially, publicly, hey, you guys, there's no need for legislation. And sorry, Roman Catholics, guess what? All along, we've had these codes that we just haven't really been enforcing, but we're going to do it now, and we're real sorry. And boom, you can point a finger on a calendar to that day and then track how movies changed, right? So because of the Hayes Code, there was a real enforcement in uh Blacks and whites being together on film in front of a camera, right? Think there mm -hmm. could be no insinuation that anything was romantic at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, things could not be too friendly. And then, of course, you have the whole racial stereotypes, which we don't need to get into because all you have to do is just like think about it for four seconds, and and you can they're they're terrible, they're awful, they're they're cringy, they're unwatchable. And this, I would say, might even include a genre of film known as race movies, which mm -hmm. ran from 1915 to 1950. There were about 500 films made starring black people, all black casts, right? Produced largely by white people, but they were made for black audiences. And so they were shown in black theaters and they were shown in black churches, right? And, and there were too many... There, there are some that are available on YouTube and you can watch them. They're very low budget films, right? Um, they're, they're fine, but mm -hmm. they are problematic in and of themselves. And, and what I'm dancing around is, you know, they're written by white people and they're starring black people. And so these are black people's lives as imagined and interpreted by white people in an era when things were incredibly racist. So allow me to introduce you to one of the most controversial of those films, Veiled Aristocrats, released in 1932. So this is post-Hayes Code. This is when, um, oh no, actually I take that back, it's 34. So this is pre-Hayes Code when things were still kind of the Wild West with film, right? Um, but it doesn't matter because this is one of the more famous race movies and I watched 20 minutes of it. And you know, if you're if you're a film student, I would say watch it because you can see the development of film, like these bad edits and the bad sound. Um, but you could you can also see like where they're learning from silent, uh, whatever. I'm going to shut up about all that. Interesting for a film buff. So uh, Veiled Aristocrats, 1932, the plot. Lorenzo uh, Tucker, who was a black actor, who looks so white, a hundred percent white. Valentino was, he was called the black Valentino. And, uh, he laughed in the press and black press saying that Valentino had was swarthy, had a darker complexion than Lorenzo Tucker. But so Lorenzo Tucker is the star and he's been passing as white for the last 20 years away from home. And he's become a successful, a successful attorney. He returns back to North Carolina to find that his sister is engaged to a dark-skinned man. His mom, who is also light-skinned, is a little devastated, a little sad by this, right? Her baby's growing up and getting married, 
but also mm-hmm. is the guy really worthy of her love? Problem number mm-hmm. one, colorism, um, mm-hmm. but fine. And then um, Lorenzo convinces his sister to move away to another city and he sets her up in her own house and he hires black servants for her, right? And so she is passing as a white woman, right? The sister of a wealthy man. A white guy falls in love with her and he Uh proposes marriage. However, she's uncomfortable with the situation as she returns home, telling her brother, open quote, I'm a negress and tired of being a liar and a cheat, close quote. She returns home and she marries the dark-skinned love of her life, right? So, okay, great. Lots of problems with that, but... Who, who, because you know, it's it's reinforcing that uh idea that the races cannot mix, she cannot marry a white man, right? And then the fact that everybody accepts her as white, but she knows that she is black and that she a liar to cheat for trying to pass a lot, a lot of it's uh, but I still enjoyed the 20 minutes that I watched. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's more from like a look how goofy movies used to be perspective, (laughs) um. So, so lots of problems in representation in film um, as a woman who is a feminist and as a gay person. I know we have both seen movies and films where we're like, that's not what we're talking about, you guys, when we say we want to see ourselves reflected in, in film, you know. Um, can you think of a, of a positive portrayal of a feminist in a movie? As a feminist? No. Right, yeah. Whenever, whenever the feminist comes in, she's got short hair. She's really angry. She's not any fun. I could go on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and then you know the gay guy. Yeah. Right. right. I don't even did, right. like. Please, hi. Yeah, absolutely, every stereotype. Turn on any film. Yes. Yeah. I'm so troubled. Oh God, I'm so tortured. Um. Okay. However. Representation has gotten better. So allow me to introduce you to UCLA. It's a school. Ever heard of it? Yes, you have. It's famous. Of course. course. It's in LA, like all good things are. Um, (laughs) So UCLA report shows great progress in actor categories in its uh, data that uh, goes back to 2011 is when they started this, right? Um, And it's the longest running study of diversity in Hollywood, the longest running continual study of diversity in Hollywood. So it's only 10 years old, right? That's how new all of us is. Um, Let's see. That's not very long. That's for sure. No, uh, it's only 10 years and I'm bad at math, but even I can do that. Okay. So uh, let's see. In 2011, the first year that was tracked, uh, diversity was the lowest uh, ever recorded by the study. So the first year they started, the lowest, right, where they reported less than 11% diversity in films. Wow. Right? And tw- bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, but it, yeah, for 2011, it's bad, too, because we were having this conversation yeah. in 2011. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If it was like 1990, I'd be like, okay, because friends. I think we were having this conversation even in the 80s. I think we've been having this conversation since at least the 50s. Probably. Yeah. So. But anyway, go ahead. But... I wasn't paying attention to this conversation. <laughs> not not until recently. I think like a lot of like a lot of white liberal people, um yeah. it, it took yeah. some major events to um wake me up. Um okay, let's see. So in 2020, 28% of films had uh a diverse cast, right? Mm. And so great. And then just under 10% of this gets real mathy, but so of all the films in 2020, 10% of those films had 11% or less. Okay. Got it. Right. That's why I hate math. It's like, just tell me that in English. Um, But okay. Got it. So uh, for the first time since the report launched, People of color were represented in the lead actor and total cast categories at levels proportionate to their presence in the American population, right? So in 2014, they're saying, hey, diversity on screen sort of caught up with diversity in real life. 39% and 42% um, 
So 39% people of color and 42% women, right? People of color make up about 40% of the U.S. population, and then women are about 51% of the population. Um, in 2020, nearly all of the films with a female director also featured a female lead, 94.7% of those. Films directed by minorities had the highest level of cast diversity, and 78% of films directed by people of color featured mostly minority leads. White film directors were two times more likely than minority directors to head a film with a budget of over $100 million. Kind of makes sense. The big money is still in the hands of the white guys. Um, men and women, however, were equally likely to direct a big budget film in 2020, which doesn't seem possible to me, but this is UCLA study. And so they say 5.7% and 5.6% respectively. I, I don't understand that. It's math. And yeah, I wish I could explain all of that better. White film directors were two times more likely than minority directors to head a film with a budget of $100, $100 million <laughs> or more, 6.4% versus 2.8%. Men and women were equally likely to direct a big budget film in 2020, 5.7 and 5.6 respectively. I don't, whatever math. Okay, fine. Moving on. Women and people of color were more likely to direct films that fell into the lowest budget category of less than 20 million. And of course, I mean, that sort of makes sense. Here are some other stats. Women made up 47.8% of lead actors and 41% of overall cast in the top films of 2020. Women make up about half of the U.S. population. So this is kind of tracking nicely. Among white, black, and Middle Eastern or North African actors, women were significantly underrepresented in the top films of 2020 compared to men in those groups. Among Latino, Asian, multiracial, and Native actors, women either approached parity with their male counterparts or exceeded it in films of 2020. And I'd like to know a little bit more about that because then that does get into representation. It's like, great, so you have um, a multiracial woman, but is she in a negligee? Like, what's mm -hmm. up? Mm -hmm. um, the most underrepresented groups in all job categories relative to their presence in the U.S. are Latino, Asian, and Native actors, directors, and writers. Among the directors, 21% were women and 30% were people of color. Among the screenwriters, 33% were women and 32% were people of color. Asian actors made up 5% of lead roles, 6% of overall cast, 6% of directors, and 4% of writers. Black actors held 15% of lead roles and 18% of overall roles, as well as 9% of directors and 10% for writers. Um, Native Americans remained virtually invisible. Women made wow. up about 47% of leading acting roles. And so um, better, we can say, than in 1994 through 2004, right, than Friends. The right. representation is growing and increasing. And as we can see here, people hire people they know. You hire yeah. people that are basically, yeah, you hire the they best hire person for the like job, them. but yeah, you hire people who are like you, right? Yeah. And so- Because um, of course you're going to be the best person for whatever job is coming up. So you hire people that are like you. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's totally <laughs> how it works. Um, so, you know, I'll say good for all that. Um, and then I was wondering about Marta, right? And just sort of like, Marta, what's up? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I've seen a YouTube clip of you talking. Um, you seem very sincere. Um, and uh, I'm interested, right? And also troubled a bit. Like I get that in the 1990s when all this criticism came your way about how friends didn't have any diversity. It was kind of like, you guys are just picking on my show because it's so popular. You hate me because I'm so pretty. Right. And fair enough. Right. Sometimes in the moment, we don't want to see ourselves. And also in fairness to Marta in the nineties, I wouldn't, I couldn't have had this conversation. I didn't have the language or the tools for it. The insight mm -hmm. uh, awareness, right. Zero cultural awareness. On, on this issue. Um, 
but still you can take your own experience and extrapolate, right? And so as a gay person, I didn't really need to see a Black Lives Matter protest in order to know what it might feel like on some level to be ostracized or have mm-hmm. to deal with a system that's kind of set up against you, right? Even if even if I could dip into privilege here and there, some white and male, right? There, there are still parts of it that are closed to me, period, right? Strip clubs, completely. Well, I guess there are gay ones. That was yes, a dub there joke. Are gay, yeah, gay ones. <laughs> I guess I don't know. I've never been in one. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I started wondering about this endowment, and so uh, Kaufman says that Brandeis is where I learned to be a human being. For Kaufman, the investment follows a period of self-examination, a time informed by her own experiences and current events. In her professional life, she has spoken about her regrets regarding the lack of diversity on her hit show Friends, on camera, and behind the scenes. Because that's the other thing. It's like, it's one thing to say like, oh, people don't watch movies with black people in them, or oh, they don't watch series with black people in them. But nobody sees the cameraman. Yeah. Right? That's the whole point of the movie, I guess. Uh, Let's see. But she was deeply impacted by the 2020 murder of George Floyd. And then she said, uh, I'm going to skip over some of that because that's in her apology. Sorry, I know that's annoying. Um, she had the reasons she's supporting Brandeis's African-American Studies Department um, is larger than the mere fact that it belongs to her alma mater. Um, Kaufman said that came to Brandeis in the first place in search of liberation from the anti-Semitism she experienced in childhood. And it was while at Brandeis, she said, that she began to think more intentionally about other people who aren't liberated. Brandeis is where I learned to be a human being. This is where my eyes were opened, at least the beginning of that. They weren't completely open. I had a lot to learn, but it was the beginning of that. It was the beginning of caring about things beyond my sphere, and I credit Brandeis for that. Now she hopes that her gift will help current and future students have the same learning experiences that she had about the plight of others, adding the true value of her support exists in the chance of really transforming not only the school, but students' lives. These professors are teaching these students uh, that when they go out to the world and they do good work and they run for office and they teach other people, she said, you're giving not only for the health and longevity of the department, but also for the future. Confusing to me. And I think maybe a word or two was left out of that. Um, and so, okay, I I could see what happened. Um, mm-hmm. And that's probably also my own journey in a mm-hmm. way, you mm-hmm. know, like, oh, yeah, I know there are problems and I and I know things are bad and but I'm not racist. Not on purpose, sure. not intentionally. Sure. Right. Sure. But um, yes, I am, because we live in a racist culture and it takes being very careful and making sure that the things that you say or do that you feel are perfectly normal, you know, looking at that through a new lens and filter. And we've had this conversation before about uh, racism and and sort of like the I don't want to call it the new awareness, but like we're just catching up. Right. We're just starting to. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah, and have a long way to go. And yeah, definitely. And yeah. And so hard cut. And look, here's two white people talking about how they feel about racism again. Uh, this racism. is a really important conversation for the world to hear. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess it's time to rate Marta's apology. All right. So um, she did tell the LA Times that she has received, quote, nothing but love, unquote, since announcing the $4 million pledge, along with people acknowledging it was long overdue. In this case, she said, I'm finally literally putting my money where my mouth is. I feel I was finally able to make some difference in the conversation. I have to say, after agreeing to this, and when I stopped sweating, it didn't unburden me, but it lifted me up. But until my next production, I can do it right. It isn't over. I want to make sure from now on in every production I do that I am conscious in hiring people of color and actively pursuing young writers of color. I want to know I will act differently from now on, and then I will feel unburdened. So I think uh, the apology part, I we went over a little bit earlier, and then the, I just added that part there, which is sort of wrapping up her apology. Um, did you have anything different for the apology itself? Nope. 
Okay, so let's take a look at the apology as, as a whole. Um, was there an expression of regret? I mean, not overtly. She didn't say, I regret or I'm sorry, but I think um, it was definitely regretful. So I'll give it a yes. Sure. Um, there was no explanation of what went wrong. She didn't say, you know, I, I'm a white person, I suck, or, I, you know, I didn't know because I had no experience with with uh, people of color in my life or nothing like that. So there was no real explanation of why um, why this happened. There was an acknowledgement of responsibility. Um, as far as a declaration of repentance goes, I think the $4 million is definitely a, a declaration of repentance and an offer of repair. And uh, there was no request for forgiveness. So I give it, I mean, it's I got to give it a... Yeah, it's hard. I think I'm going to give it a solid 7.5 because she, she, yeah, that 0.5 is important. It is. She, she definitely gave some money. She definitely did some things and she probably will go on to act differently in the future, but that remains to be seen. Um, so I can't really give it any higher than that. Sure. But I think um, she's done more than most people have done. So it gets a 7.5. I'm going to say that it's an apology that I accept, and from your rating, you accept it as well. Um, I'm very well aware of the fact that I am a white liberal judging another white liberal's apology, and initially I was pretty harsh about it, because I was like, wow, I hear a lot of me and a lot of I in this. Yes, definitely. That's a little problematic. Yeah, so Marta, mm. but then when I like, (laughs) I don't know if I want to say dived in or dove. Dove. Like, which is grammatically more correct? Dove. When I dived into it. (laughs) (laughs) Dove. (laughs) Um, I I shifted my thinking a bit, right? And then the more I was like, holy fuck, all I need is like $600 million like Marta has, and I'm essentially Marta. I know, right? right? And that's what I was wondering too, like what percentage of her total like cash? Well, uh, she can't give it all away. I mean, somebody's got to compete with the Catholic Church. $4 million is like buying a candy bar for her. So was it really a significant donation? Uh, Probably it was. Probably it was. I mean, I'm sure Brandeis is saying thanks. Brandeis is happy. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for the candy bar, yeah. Marta. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it... Okay, so everybody's anxiously waiting for my rating. And I'm at like a 6.8. Let's call it a 7, right? Okay. Um, and it, it... Why isn't it an 8, right? Because at a certain point, I was like, oh, you know what? This is really an 8. Um, I'm going to take points away from... I'm probably a little too forgiving given mm. who I am, right? Um, and gotcha. that I need a job in the entertainment industry, Marta, and I'm hoping that you'll... Right. Um, <laughs> you'll be hearing from us Yeah, tomorrow. thanks, Marta. Um, so, and then, yeah, and then there was this, like, well, this is exactly how I am and how I would feel and how I would be, even though it might be a different journey or whatever. So, um, great, it's a 10, it's an 11, because you really put your soul out there. But... At the same time, Marta, I mean, I, you went to Brandeis so that you could escape anti-Semitism, and then you went to Hollywood, right? right? right. Which is fine. There's nothing wrong with going to Hollywood. Um, and then you had a, a an opportunity to, like, how can I help other people who might feel just, and you didn't, and so, uh, but now I'm judging the actions, right? And so, yeah, it's a it's a good seven for me. So what is that, a 7.25 overall? Yep, which is reasonable. We've had worse. Oh, we've had much. We've had zeros. (laughs) It seems like we've had a lot of zeros. (laughs) So awesome. Um, I think that's it for us then today. That is it, except for who's sorry now or apology expected. Oh, oh that's right. Our oh, ever-present sad. third segment of the show that we always both Which forget we never about. Remember, right? And I, I actually didn't forget it this week. I looked through the news to find an apology expected, and I looked and I looked and I actually literally spent hours looking and I couldn't find anything. Um, I don't know why. What's going on? That people aren't doing things that they need to apologize for. But it was either somebody already apologized for something or something apology wasn't appropriate or I don't know what. But um, couldn't find anything. And I don't have anything to apologize for personally because I'm without flaw. Exactly. Right. So um, I am with flaw. And so (laughs) mine is a who's sorry now. 
And okay. I want to apologize to my friend, Kim, um, from Disney, who was my boss at the time. And I was not watching TV, right? It just, I wasn't doing it. Part of it was cable was really expensive and getting free TV was impossible where we lived because it was just so staticky and grainy and there was nothing worth watching anyway. It was all stupid, sure. right? So couldn't afford cable. It was poverty that allowed me to exercise my moral superiority, but I did exercise it rather vigorously in front of my friend Kim who watched TV all the time. And she would say, hey, did you see that commercial with the Zaki Farm chickens? I would say, mm -hmm. no. <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't seen the commercial on TV starring the Zaki Farm chickens. I don't know who they are. Uh -huh. And I don't want to talk about a commercial that's on TV. Well, right. it's really funny. And so they're driving down the road and they're eating junk food. And then this cop pulls them over. And I'm like, are they puppets or are they cartoons? Yeah. She's like, how could you have never seen it? Well, I don't have a TV, <laughs> right? Which is what I should have had tattooed on my forehead, except I'm real proud of that fact. Um, uh -huh. But again, it wasn't a conscious choice. It just was right. a fiscal right. necessity. Anyway, I would shit all over Kim for watching TV. And I want to apologize <laughs> to her because uh -huh. now that's all I do. <laughs> and Kim, I have Googled and watched the Zaki Farm chicken police commercial. And yes, I treated you like a jerk for telling me about the most hysterical commercial of all time. I've never heard of the Zaki Farms. So Zaki Farms is a brand Zaki of chicken, chicken that sold in LA in the grocery stores. Okay. Right? Okay. And it's just raw chicken. Zaki Farms. Um, okay. And I don't know if it's around anymore or not. And Lily and Zaki... Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> she was a friend of my friend Tabitha. No. Um, so these chickens were the Zaki Farm uh -huh. chickens, and they're puppets. They're Muppets, right? And oh, But they're okay. not Zaki Farm chickens. They want to be. Oh, okay. Right? And so, and they always show up places, and they're like, hi, we're ready to be killed. We're Zaki Farm chickens. We're so delicious. <laughs> but they're smoking cigarettes and holding beer bottles or whatever. <laughs> And then whoever it is is like, you're not a Zaki Farm chicken. And sometimes it's a cow that kicks them off the field, oh, right? Like, you're not a Zaki Farm chicken. And so they, the cop pulls them over and it's like, do you know why I'm pulling you over? And they were like, because we're speeding. And he said, no, because you're impersonating Zaki Farm chicken. And their car's <laughs> littered with like fast food bags and, you know, the giant Cokes. So pretty funny. Yeah. That's cute. I'm, I'm sorry, Kim. I was a jerk, and I'm glad you're still my friend, and you forgave me for that. And I now accept Aww. the power of TV. <laughs> Into your life. Yes. <laughs> it wasn't... Awesome. Yeah. I'll have to tell this one, all right. So it wasn't until I met James that I got back into TV, right? And that's mm -hmm. when suddenly I had money before TV. Well, I had, no, I did. I had TV before that. But um, anyway, he had just moved to LA, and... We had just moved in together, and I had a job where I had work all kinds of odd hours, and usually it was a weekend, right? So sometimes during the weekend, I'd be gone for long stretches. And he didn't have a lot of friends or whatever, but cool. And so I came home from work one Sunday night, and he was sitting on the couch crying. And <laughs> I was like, oh, what's wrong? And he was like, Tina and Pat broke up. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no, I'm sorry. Are these friends of yours? I'm imagining like new friends he's made in LA or whatever, yeah. right? And no, he was like, he said, no, they're the two women on TV. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And it was like that show that I'm watching, The L Word, Tina and Bat broke up. And I was like, Aww. you're crying about people on TV. That's how Aww. unforgiving I was. Uh, I couldn't believe, I couldn't have imagined anything more ridiculous. <laughs> and now, yes, now I cry all the now time. Now you cry. Oh, nonstop. <laughs> TV's amazing. I'm sorry, everyone. Aww. You were all right. I cry at TikTok, so. Same. That's. I don't have TV, but I do have TikTok. But TikTok is TV. So. Just... It is TV. It's like short little TV shows. Yeah. So. <laughs> all right, everyone. Thank you for... <laughs> thank you for listening to us talk on again yes. um, we are very happy to have you with us every week and we'll be back next week same time same channel um, that's all I have to say Me bye oh you were not going to say I love you oh yeah <laughs> I love you see you later we love your bye. applause more goodbye everyone <laughs>
While Americans overwhelmingly support the right of an individual to make their own decisions about abortion, unfortunately, that right is no longer protected everywhere in the United States. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade on June 24th. Abortion is a basic health care need for the millions of people who can become pregnant. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Even if you live in a state where abortion rights are upheld, access to safe medical procedures shouldn't be determined by location, and it shouldn't be the privilege of a small few. You can help by donating to local abortion funds. To find out where to donate for each state, visit donationsforabortion.com. That's the number four. If you or someone you know needs help, or if you want to get more involved, here are five resources. One, Shout Your Abortion is a campaign to normalize abortion. Two, Don't Ban Equality is a campaign for companies to take a stand against abortion restrictions. Three, Abortion.cafe has information about where to find clinics. Four, PlanCPills.org provides early at-home abortion pills that you can keep in your medicine cabinet. And five, Choice.CRD.CO has a collection of these resources and more. You can also find links to all of these resources at PodVoices.Help. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word.